And welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. This is Bilal Zaidi and we've got NIA boys here, Trunk Fan, Jack Butcher and a very special guest today. We've got Brett Harrison. How you doing, Brett? You're the president of FTX. We're going to go all US. into that today of US. Uh, but welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Great to be here. Great to have you on. So look, man, this is not going to be a normal interview. This is not going to be your bog standard, <laughs> boring Tell us about crypto world. We'll get to that in, in a little while. There's a segment we have on the show called Meme of the Week. So we're going to kick off with that, bring you into the NIA world. Uh, Trung is our very own Meme Master Flex. So he's going to kick it off for us and we will take it from there. Yeah. I, uh, so, I mean, this is not going to be surprising to Brett. He's definitely seen this. So, Brett, I have to ask you. <laughs> so when SBF hit the uh, the Senate hearing circuit, uh these the shoe photos came out right and i know that he's addressed it i know the fdx twitter account has addressed how he ties his dress shoes so what i wanted to ask is this as this is happening real time and the f uh, the ftx slack channel is seeing this all go down obviously very serious thing going down but then sbf has the shoe thing happen and then he embraces it obviously what were you guys thinking the team inside the slack channel ftx how were the jokes flying? This is what I need to know. The, the jokes were flying. The, uh, <laughs> the, the meme opportunism was growing. We were like, okay, how can we get, you know, people to, you know, post NFTs of this on our site. And, and sure enough, someone did like an artist came in and did like, a, they did this really cool rendering. It was of the shoes of the laces tied in those style, but it said FTX in the lace like oh loops and stuff like that. It was so good. So yeah, we were, That's we were all over that. You guys were, I mean, is this, you obviously you've known uh, SPF for so long and you worked with him at Jane street. And uh, I, this was just very consistent with his personality, you know, just like all business, not really about tying the shoes, but getting the job done. Oh yeah. Plus, I mean, we, I, I don't think any of us knew he owned a suit prior to that hearing. <laughs> um, he may not have owned a suit prior to that hearing for all I know. Um, so yeah, no par for the course. I have to do, I have to say though, the last thing I'll leave on this was, uh, the second time he came around, he said, uh, okay, I'm ready this time. His shoes were very nicely tied. That was, uh, that, is that was very well done. <laughs> so, so Brett, I mean, look, you just brought up a, a big topic on the show is kind of memes, right? Like the tagline of the show is the latest in business tech and memes. And the, when we say memes, I think you get this better than anyone. It's not just about like the image with text, it's about ideas spreading. And you guys have been an amazing example of that in the space. So today we are gonna talk about the kind of marketing side, uh, how you guys think about that. Um, obviously how, how FTX differentiates itself. Um, but like before we get into that, just we, we talked a bit about SBF uh, a second ago. Um, like, just tell us a little bit about how you got and landed at uh, FTX, man, because you've had a really interesting career before. Yeah, for sure. So I got my start out of college at Jane Street Capital um, as a software developer. I was building out algorithmic trading systems and low latency order gateways and market data handlers and things like that. Um, then moved on to managing software developers who were doing those things and helping architect systems. And it was while I was there during my eight years that I was at Jane Street that I overlapped with Sam for three or four years. And he was a trader. I was an uh, engineer, engineering manager, and uh, we worked together on a couple of different projects. 
Um, while we were there, we realized we shared a lot of interests in common on the philanthropic side for, for you know, animal welfare and things like that, um, fellow vegans. And, and then we went our separate ways. You know, Sam moved on to found you know, three giant multi-billion dollar companies. I followed my, my wife to Chicago. Um, and so, you know, we went our very similar paths and then, uh, and then at some point, um, I, so I was at Citadel securities, um, as managing a team around hundred developers on various projects and looking to, to leave. And at that point, Sam and I had been texting back and forth and, and kind of keeping up over the years and somewhat out of the blue, he said, Hey, you know, do you want to come over to FTX? And I said, yes, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> how long did really it take how, to say yes? Was that oh, like, like 12 seconds or three seconds? <laughs> yeah, it, the, the, the yes was, was something like 30 seconds. The, the details of like actually make going from yes to like me leaving my previous job and joining the next job was something like 24 hours. Um, and then, wow. yeah, and that was it. And so my, my experience in crypto, I, I really didn't have that much before joining FTX really the only crypto that I saw was at, at Jane street when they were sort of starting up their crypto arbitrage desk towards the end of 2017, I was a bit involved in that. But at the time I thought this is a crazy world that won't last more than three months. Um, and I was I'm glad I was wrong. Uh, but then, but really sort of really got into crypto full time upon joining FTX. You're very active on uh, the Twitter threads. So every time you guys launch something, I'm trying to frame it uh, and, and educate the world, right? So it, it seems like you fully dived on in. Well, that, that's one of the things that makes crypto so cool. Maybe, um, you know, yes, I like my previous jobs and things like that. But comparing to how things were inside of, you know, super secretive proprietary trading companies and hedge funds, everything is very open in crypto. It's that open source mentality. People are talking about what they're building. They're looking for mutual investments. They're um, looking to collaborate on projects. People are very open and active. We're reaching out directly to customers. Customers are yelling at us directly on Twitter. And so it's a very different world from that perspective. And so that's why it's fun to kind of be part of the, the social media world. I, I, I started my Twitter account on May 12th, 2021, which was the day I joined FTX because Sam said, you can't be in crypto and not have a Twitter account. And so that, that's how that got started. I actually, uh, that was one question I did want to ask about uh, the Twitter and how important it is to FTX and the crypto environment in general. This is one tweet that I did tweet out. I, uh, you remember this famous photo of, uh, I think, Wall Street Journal had of SBF in Hong Kong. Somebody pointed out that one of his six trading screens. So for the listeners, it's just a photo of SBF and six trading screens. One of the entire screens is just Twitter. right? So I did want to kind of follow up on that is, so he said, you can't be in crypto without Twitter. And then obviously SBF yourself, the FTX accounts interact uh, are so active on Twitter. How important is Twitter for FTX and just speak about the broader crypto economy in general? I mean, it's critical. It's the primary way that we reach our users. And I think every you know, industry and community has their niche online. And for some, for like the gaming world, it's Twitch. And then for certain investment communities, it's Reddit. For whatever reason, for crypto and crypto, Twitter, it's Twitter, right? It's like everyone goes on there to discuss. I mean, we, we break news there. We, we talk about new features there. We get feature requests. Um, I wrote something a couple of days ago where I said, like, what do people think about you know, FTX US trading fees, you know, we're going to think about those, what people have suggestions and people will write in very thoughtful analyses and say, you know, here's what I think about these fee tiers compared to this other exchange. Here's where I think about other mechanics that could be better for the exchange to improve. 
And I think it's one of the reasons why FTX has been so successful is because we just listen to what the hell people want and then just do it, you know, which is weird. It's simple, but very few companies do it. I mean, most companies don't ask their own users for advice. They just do what they think is right, which is never the right thing. Um, so it's just so critical for us. It's the way, it's the way that we've been able to iterate fast and give people, um, give people the kind of experience that they can be loyal to. If, if you ask for a change or you need help with your account and you know, the, the founder or the president of the company like reaches back out to you and helps you, that'll be an experience that you'll remember. And then you'll come back to that company. If you're waiting six months for someone to like fix an account problem, you probably won't have a lot of loyalty to that company, right? Yeah, 100%. And so, so Brett, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit there, but just for people, for the, for the three people who've never heard of FTX, listen to this. Uh, uh, but I'm assuming everyone listening to us has heard of FTX by this point. Uh, but just how do you guys differentiate yourself from the other big players in the space? Obviously, there's there's Coinbase, Gemini, Binance, and other crypto exchanges. But I don't know how you guys actually kind of describe yourselves. It's always good to hear it from sure from someone there. So just stepping back a bit. So FTX was founded three years ago. And it is a global cryptocurrency derivatives and cryptocurrency exchange. And in the world of crypto, most of the volume trades in derivatives, not in the spot. So things like Bitcoin futures, not Bitcoin to USD spot market. And that's true in most asset classes globally, that most of the volume trades in derivatives as opposed to the underlying. Think about like the S&P 500 future. So... That's how FTX grew to be the second or third largest exchange in the world was by building a superior product for cryptocurrency derivatives because the sort of competitor exchanges were doing things like liquidating people with giant market orders that would smash through the book or you know, clawing back from the, the profits from customers to help cover the losses from sort of bad operational problems. Um, things like exchanges just going down whenever there's a volatile moment or getting unbearably slow. And so that's how FTX developed. It became this institutional grade professional product for trading these very liquid, very important assets in the ecosystem. Then around a year and a half ago, um, the company really wanted to launch a U.S. business. So FTX was available everywhere but the U.S. because to offer derivatives in the U.S., you need special licenses particularly from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. And so FTX US was developed to be able to sort of walk the licensed and regulated path in the US, which requires very specific company structure and regulation and compliance. So it started as a spot crypto exchange. Um, we started sort of end of 2020, early 2021. We had like 10,000 customers and a million dollars of volume in the US. So we were basically nothing. Um, towards the end of 2021, we had 1.2 million users and 300 million a day in spot volume. And at the end of 2021, we acquired the company LedgerX, which is a licensed CFTC derivatives exchange. And our, our big effort right now is getting the approval we need from the CFTC to be able to offer margined Bitcoin Ether futures in the US. So one thing that really distinguishes us is that we have been obtaining the licenses required to be able to offer products which people really want to have available to them, but might not have because of you know, the lack of licensing in the past. So I would say that's the biggest difference now is that we might be the first crypto player ever to offer licensed derivatives in the US. Um, the second is that we have a 
more diverse array of services. So we're not just a place where you can buy Bitcoin, but we also have an NFT marketplace. Um, we are a set of APIs and services that different products can white label. So for example, we partner with StockTwits, which is a, you know, a US stock social investing app that has offered crypto by taking FTX's exchange and white labeling its services in the back end underneath the StockTwits brand and application. Um, number three, we are soon, um, something that I'm personally working on, lo looking to launch a uh, stock trading component. So sort of imagine approaching Robinhood from the other direction, um, adding vanilla US stock and options trading to this holistic experience. Um, and in general, our sort of approach to institutional volume. So FTX globally has something like three or four times the volume of Coinbase, but around 120th of the total users. So that is just showing the, the kind of users that we have are the real high volume, more professional type traders, as opposed to the, you know, buy Dogecoin once a month type person. Um, so that, those are, the, I think, the main things that distinguish us as a company from many of our competitors. Amazing. Yeah, that's a great overview. Thanks, man. So today, look, we, we actually have an exclusive that we're going to talk about for uh, announcement from FTX, but you got to wait till later in the show uh, for us to, to talk about that. Because today we're going to talk about the wider crypto space uh, and obviously all, the, all things FTX. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's so many places we could kind of go next, but what I'm most interested in is that transition point and kind of what was exciting you in the space because you, you're a very experienced person um, in your previous roles. Um, but curious, like what was really exciting you and, and even now looking forward in the space as a whole? The most exciting thing for me is seeing how exchanges and trading venues have developed in a world without constraints. So if you think about the equity markets, which is the primary place where I've done the most work, there's a lot of things that I always just took for granted. Like, okay, if you want to trade a stock, you are going through like a local executing broker, if you're not one yourself, through a clearing broker dealer to one of 15 US exchanges where you have to get market data from all of them. Um, you might also need to route to some dark pools or ATSs or unregistered ATSs. Um, then the market data is like a separate thing that comes from a separate service that you have to listen to. And those are all cleared by some central clearing service, which is separate from all the above, who have to talk to all the prime brokers. There's 30 different actors involved already in this system. And every one of them is charging fees. Every one of them provides gated access. Um, if you want the best access to an exchange, you need to buy expensive servers co-located in the facility in New Jersey, that's where the exchange is housed. Crypto is totally different. And people just you know, built exchanges in the age of the internet. And it sounds a little bit like old school to say the age of the internet, but that's really what it is. And they just said, okay, what's the simplest freaking thing I can make? How about an exchange that holds all the money, that holds the matching engine, it provides this, the market data, the market data is free, order entry is free. And the only thing involved in a trade is the buyer, the seller, and the exchange. And it is so much easier to sort of access and wrap your head around. And we're not, I'm not even getting into the DeFi world, which you know has no intermediary, but just sort of having one intermediary as opposed to N for large N is a radical shift. And that's what really sort of excited me as I learned more about this space. So the, in general, going forward, what I'm excited about is seeing the ways in which 
blockchain technology and crypto, but just the mindset of building something from scratch in the best way possible is enabling people to sort of change the, the model by which people envision financial markets working. So Brad, actually, based on uh, what you just said there, I know you used to work at Citadel Securities. I don't want to get you in any trouble here, but I know Citadel has started, you know, they took investment from Paradigm. They've started changing uh, their tune on crypto. How difficult will it be for Citadel Securities to go backwards where you guys are building from scratch? So yeah, I, I, I definitely you know, can't talk about specifics inside of Citadel and, and all their crypto operations started like after I left. So I'm not privy to exactly what they're doing, but these trading firms are very advanced. They have you know, advanced trading algorithms. <clears throat> they have some of the best developers in the world. And I have no doubt that any one of them, if they're not in the space already, can enter with a very low barrier to entry and be successful. Okay. Now, the difference is, is that you don't have to be Citadel in order to be able to compete. You can be a single person in college with your laptop, you know, in your dorm room and a Python program, and you can have the same exact access to FTX as Citadel does. And no one has a latency advantage. No one has a market data advantage because you have you know, tens of millions of dollars to spend per month on market data. It's all free. It's all equal access. And so that's what I see as the difference where I have no doubt they'll be able to compete and probably be very profitable, but it's no longer a world where they're the only ones that can do so. Right. The, uh, the other part that I found interesting was you live in Chicago now. You moved there. Uh, I'd heard on previous podcasts, you moved there uh, with your wife. Uh, uh, her family is from Chicago. And um, what I found interesting was Chicago is obviously considered the derivatives capital of the world. Uh, CME Group is out there. A lot of other big derivatives exchanges. How, how much of a kind of a coincidence is it? Not necessarily coincidence, but uh, also, uh, you know, struck a light of, of fate in the sense of, you are living there. You used to work with SBF, and now you are have access to all this kind of derivative and exchange talent. Was this part of the equation of you jumping to FTX? It, it feels somewhat coincidental and, and fateful in a sense that a, a lot of the thought around me staying in Chicago um, was at the time um, SBF and the FTX.com team were in Hong Kong. And I, I love Hong Kong, but I was not ready to pick up my, my family um, my like giant cadre of pets and my child and my, my spouse and move our whole home to Hong Kong. And so, you know, selfishly, I said, well, if we're, we're going to build this U.S. business, you know, we need an office. How about we keep it here? I'll find some office space, start to grow it out. It was myself and one other person. Um, we found some office space and then grew very quickly to like 20, 25 people here in Chicago. And it was really only after we we started making serious progress on the regulatory front for derivatives that we realized, wow, this is actually really good that we're here because CME is here and SIBO is here and every you know FCM and every bank is here and all the trading firms are here. Jump trading is here. Solana people are here. It's just a great nexus for the combination of traditional finance and crypto in one place. Okay. So Chicago, the, there is just this wealth of talent is specifically for what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. And again, the, the, the history here, I mean, the, the U.S. derivatives market that we know today was, was born in Chicago with, you know, originally the Chicago Board of Trade and then CME becoming the electronic market for derivatives in the 70s and then, you know, taking over the Board of Trade and then 
the, the advent of companies like SIBO and then the trading firms like Jump and Virtu and Citadel and Chicago Trading Company and DRW growing these huge crypto businesses and getting involved, um, all being in that same nexus of, of, uh, of geographic space. And, and Brett, you just mentioned Solana there. That was actually something we had on our docket to talk about. So could you tell us a little bit about the latest with, you know, how you guys see, you know, Solana? I know you've got some, I don't know if you want to call it a special relationship or, you know, like a, a, a positive take on using Solana anyway. So um, just curious on what is the latest with you guys and Solana? And, and then maybe after that, we can talk about why uh, Solana over other platforms or other blockchains? Yeah, for sure. So we are heavily invested in it as a company. And I don't mean monetarily, I mean sort of like philosophically in the growth of blockchains. But the other thing we know is that as an exchange, we have to maintain a certain amount of throughput. How many messages per second can we process as an exchange? And when you think about any real world application like Twitter, or um, you know, a- Amazon or an exchange, you need to be able to support a certain number of transactions per second if you want the user to have any reasonable experience. I mean, imagine you know, wanting to send a tweet and then needing to wait 10 minutes for that to appear on your timeline, then people will throw their monitors at the wall, right? <laughs> this can't, that can't be the way that works. So in order for blockchains to actually be viable for real world applications. Not that there aren't now, but for it to really grow, it needs to be able to be low fee and high transaction per second, high TPS. And among the different solutions that are out there, Solana is one of the most, if not the most promising for a layer one blockchain that can support that kind of throughput um, in the tens of thousands or perhaps hundreds of thousands messages per second. And just on a personal level, level, they have this amazing team, like some of the best you know, developers I've ever met in my life. And they're building amazing stuff. And so they're great to partner with on, on things. They're not the only ones in the space who are doing you know, a, a really interesting and potentially very promising layer one or layer, even layer two solution, but they're, they're some of the best. And so like, if you, why you guys, I know you probably weren't there when you guys were choosing to work with Solana in that way in the design of what you're doing but just curious like you've obviously been there for a while now and you're a part of those decisions now when you look at other players layer ones layer ones in the space whether that's ethereum or many of the other smart contract platforms like what's your kind of ball case for solana versus those i mean i don't know if you already kind of covered that but uh, i'm curious if you have thoughts on any of the others yeah so if you think about something like Ethereum, how many transactions per second does Ethereum support right now? It's like 100 or something like that. Um, and if you want to build an order-by-order exchange, which is uh, so an affiliate of FTX, and it's not an affiliate of FTX, it's sort of like a separate company that has some relations in, in, the, in the origins, which is Serum, when, when they built their decentralized exchange for some blockchain, they said, well, if there's going to be hundred messages per second that can't possibly support an exchange. You know, NASDAQ has something like 500,000 messages per second that go through it. Right. So it's, it's nowhere close. And so in order for it to be viable, it had to start somewhere. And 
the, the other problem is fees. I mean, how, how much gas does it cost to tr- send one transaction on Ethereum? It's somewhere between 30 US dollars worth of Ethereum, of Ether, and like $120 worth of Ether, depending on what you're doing, what the transaction is, how congested the network is. And again, imagine uh, you know, a billion or 2 billion or 5 billion messages per day where each one costs you know, $50. There's just no way people will, will use that service. Whereas on Solana, it's you know, fractions of a penny per transaction. So it's low cost, low energy usage. Something that's very important to us now is making sure that we're you know, responsible members of the blockchain ecosystem and we're using those that promote responsible energy practices. Well, a single Solana transaction has the energy usage of something like two Google searches. So it's low energy, high throughput, it's low cost, and the technology we think is great. So these are like some of the reasons that we have you know, dove in with Solana. That makes sense. And, no, that, and make, what about- that makes a lot of sense. Actually, a quick on, question I had was, uh, you did mention Google uh, searches there. And what, what I was curious about, and I had tabbed as a question was, um, outside of traditional finance or even the crypto space, what technology players do you look at? And you're like, okay, this is how they built the company. This is something that is worth taking lessons from or potentially to imitate, whether it be a Google or Amazon or which are some of the older school companies from Web2 and uh, maybe even earlier that you're looking at is like, okay, these are very interesting models and lessons that we can draw from. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, so I'll tell you one thing that we don't want to do before I tell you what we do want to do as a company. So one thing we don't want to do is hire 10,000 people over the next, you know, three months and imagine that that will result in, you know, 10,000 X, the productivity of the company. Um, not only does the productivity of a company grow sublinearly with the scale of the company, but sometimes it goes negative. Um, when you are not careful about it, you end up with like weird, you know, bureaucratic structures that you didn't expect in the beginning. And suddenly, uh, simple things you might want to do get bogged down in processes we as a company need to maintain our nimbleness in order to become, you know, continue to dominate the space or to become the number one in the U S or whatever our goals are. And so we want to sort of maintain this sort of small startup feel, even though we're very large as a company. So we're something like 200 ish people total, 250. Is that globally? That's globally. Oh, wow. Something something around like 20 ish, 25 software developers, depending on how you count. Oh, damn. I mean, compare that to some of our our competitors who have like thousands of engineers. Um, So this is a thing that we want to, you know, emulate. I think um, I've heard about stories of, you know, like Netflix in the early days where, you know, they had their initial business and it was, you know, as you guys remember, like mailing out DVDs and it was like going okay, but not great. And they grew pretty quickly though with funding. And then they realized that like there were like lots of people who weren't contributing to the essentials of the company. And they had this sort of complete turnover. A lot of people left and they were left with this really small group of people who were super passionate about the company and were all incredibly essential. And from that grew the Netflix business that we know today. And I'm obviously like aligning a lot of details here, but the idea of having a like mostly cloud-based, fully digital, very nimble, um, small, very dedicated team of a company is, I think, the, the sort of atmosphere that we're going for. No, that makes a, a lot of sense. Oh, go ahead, Jack. Yeah, bro. I was. It was. This is a little bit of a rewind to 
the point you brought up earlier about anybody can compete in this space combined with the small team piece that you just mentioned. And we did a episode about a month ago on the Super Bowl ads. And we talked about the, uh, the couple of like crowdsource memes that came out of, um, the Coinbase. You probably remember this vividly, but the SBF haircut that was bouncing around the screen. Yep. We did that one. That's the guy that is, uh, is sitting like right over there. Uh, Chris, that's Chris, well, Chris, please, <laughs> funny. please send our regards me master. Uh, well, I was just curious about obviously distribution is incredibly important and you guys seem to have like tapped into the culture in a way that other exchanges aren't able to do. And I think that does have a lot to do with like bureaucracy and hiring people that maybe didn't grow up natively in the space, but just curious what you attribute that to how you guys think about distribution, just opining on that, I think would be super interesting for everyone who listens and us. Yeah. I think it goes back to the stuff we were saying earlier in the podcast about um, just Twitter and, and reaching people directly. And this is the kind of thing where like if on day one, having known nothing about crypto and coming from, you know, traditional finance companies, I was like trying to speak to the crypto masses, I would just fail miserably, right? You, you, you need to kind of plug yourself in and get a sense of what people are talking about, even the jargon, right? Like <laughs> there's a whole language that's developed on, on crypto Twitter, as you guys know, and the whole like meme ethos. And I think that the, between between Sam and, and the rest of us, we have we're, we're living that, and so we we now get a sense of like here's what people want to hear from us, and especially you see this in these even more niche communities like NFTs, where that is itself a, 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 a niche community that has its own way of talking to each other and its own understanding of what's important, what's not important, and what's you know sort of corporate. Right, corporatization right. of NFT versus what is like actually being part of the culture and the culture is very important there. And what we don't want to do is like be a big company that sort of swoops in and, and, and tries to pretend like we know what we're talking about as opposed to just being part of the dialogue. Um, and so between things like our Super Bowl ad, having uh, you know a sense of humor about ourselves as a company to the memes that we put on our FTX NFT Twitter like we're, we're trying to stay in touch. We don't want to seem out of touch. And uh, obviously talent plays a big part in that as well. Just getting uh, people working that are plugged in. Like you said that like hello kids with the skateboard slung over the shoulder is, yeah. is how a lot of these <laughs> brands come off. So you guys are doing a great job there. And like I worked in advertising for a long time and just the process of getting things approved and waiting for a moment to pass is kind of, you give up so much of that upside in not being able to act quickly. So what you, what you uh, mentioned about staying small on that front, it's not just like shipping code that matters. It's responding to moments too. Yeah, it, it, it exactly. It doesn't just apply to code. It applies to like a tweet. It applies to an advertisement. Like there could be a moment like, you know, Tom Brady's retiring and unretiring where there's like an opportunity there to like, to use the moment and do something that's like fun and engaging. And right. If you have to go through like several board meetings worth of uh, approvals, it's gone. The moment's pass. And, and that's the, that's somewhat of the hazard of the, the social media world is that if you're not plugged in at every moment and ready to respond spontaneously to the things that are going on, like you're just going to pass you by. Uh just uh, wanted to follow up with that uh, to Jack's point was we have to talk about the Larry David ad and uh, <laughs> how much 
involvement did you have? Like, and if if it wasn't so much, like, what can you share about the entire process? Because I read up on it, and uh, it's insane that it happened. Because Larry David obviously doesn't do very many of these, uh, and uh, I would love to get some background on it and your reaction to the final product. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I was only involved a teeny bit at the beginning of the process, and like on, on some of like approvals along the way, especially like on on spending and things like that. Um, but what what I'll, I can tell you is that. Um, we work with this really great uh, company called Densu, McGarry Bowen, and they're, they're, they've done a couple of our ads. They did our, um, our two Tom Brady ads, you know, the trade and um, a couple of the other one, I can't remember the name of it, but we've, it, they've been so great to work with. And so we wanted to, we knew we wanted to do something for the Super Bowl. We weren't sure what it was, but we had to do something. Um, and so, you know, we bought the space and then said, okay, we got to fill it. And Densu had come up with these different ideas and pitched different you know, possibilities for what to do there. And they came up with this idea, this, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure we're not the first person to do something similar to the ad that we did, but this idea of a person who's, you know, pure, screws up through history and then misses all the big things that are happening. And he had, they had the idea of like, this, this would be perfect for Larry David. And the problem, of course, as you know, is that he does very few advertisements. Sorry, he does zero advertisements. It's not something that he's done before. And I think a large part of that is him wanting to feel that the ad itself and the script really speaks to him and the concept really speaks to him and his character. And so when he was pitched this idea, he just loved it. And he spent like an hour and a half ripping on all the different characters that could exist and all the different timelines and possibilities for for. for for comedy and, and he just loved it. It was really integral part of the process so much so that at some point it was like completely out of our hands. He wanted to pick, he did all the script. He, you know, he was there for the full, you know, three days of filming. He edited it himself. He was super, super involved and he just loved the concept. And I think he got to be his character. He got to include, you know, inside jokes from curb in different of the aspect, different of the storylines and, and, and that's why, I think that's why it came together so well is because he was such uh, a deeply integrated part of that process from the beginning. I think uh, a lot of the, uh, obviously you're going to get both sides, right? The the majority, I'd say like 90% plus of what I saw was like, this is the funniest Super Bowl as we've seen in X years, right? But obviously the, the criticism is like, oh my God, how much money did they pay Larry David? I, I think what people don't understand is Larry David is comically rich already, right? He's like worth half a billion dollars. So I think that what you brought up was so interesting was like, this was like a creative project for Larry David, right? It wasn't about getting the bag. This is like, this is an amazing creative opportunity. Right. I mean, there were a lot of comments that were like, man, I would totally pay to see a show where each episode or each season was like one of these <laughs> timelines, like Larry David yeah. in, you know, Victorian England. Um, uh, so I, pe people just really loved the production value and the creativity that went through it. Um, and, and yeah, I think... You, you always hear like the what about isms in terms of spending, right? Like, oh, well, what, what could they have spent that X millions of dollars on instead to like improve their product or whatever people say? And uh, it, first of all, it's not an either or, thankfully for us. Uh, secondly, that how many people now talk about and think about and know about FTX as a result of that ad? And it's very difficult to put a price tag on, especially if we want to grow and we want to, we have this new product we're going to launch with derivatives or with stocks and people are going to hear instead of being like, who's FTX, they can be like, Oh, FTX. I know them. They made uh, me laugh at the Super Bowl. 
Yeah, Brett, we uh, sort of extrapolated from the ad as well that the way it was pitched is to kind of address the skeptic or at least to frame it from the skeptic's point of view where that, you know, some of the like mass market advertising feels like it's saying something that people already, that are already convinced already know, if that makes sense. Like framing it that way was really clever. And I think what I'd love to hear you talk about a bit more is like how you think about like customer acquisition, like who isn't already using FTX that you want to get on the platform. And I think giving a sense of scale as to like who is left to onboard is, would be really helpful. Um, I don't honestly have a great picture of that myself. So really curious to hear you talk about that. Yeah, look, we're, we're still small as a retail user base. And, you know, we, we have something like a million and a half users in the U S Coinbase is something like 50 million users. I think the number is larger actually. So there's a lot of people left on board, but the question of like, who, who are those people? I, I think there's basically two camps. There's ones who are using other services and have not yet switched over to us. And a lot of that has to do with, we need to make sure that the product is superior. We need to message to people that they'll pay lower fees, which is definitely true with us. Um, we need to give people enough of an interesting and diverse product set that incentivizes them to do the high fixed cost operation of moving their assets and their portfolios from one exchange to another. And there's a new demographic, which is people who are getting into crypto for the first time, and they're going to make their choice. They're going to type in buy Bitcoin into their app store, and maybe they'll click the first thing that comes up, or maybe they'll click the first thing that they've heard of, or maybe they'll do a little bit of research. And you know, how can we help them make the best possible choice for them? And hopefully that choice leads them to FTX. Those are the two main demographics of people that we are have sort of yet to onboard. And, and we're going to be spending a lot of time and money and effort and engineering power over the coming, let's say one to two years on trying to now onboard the masses to FTX now that we have such a good hold on the institutional market. Awesome. Great answer. Thank you. Um, Brett, I just had a follow-up question to that. Uh, first of all, thanks for sharing all of that. That's really, really interesting. I, I think the the bigger question around like how you're getting out to the masses, you, you've talked about like the partnerships or the the celebrity endorsement side in your ads with Tom Brady and Larry David, the Super Bowl ads. Um, just from my experience, seeing a lot of like technical founders when they start, especially in the smaller stages, a lot of them don't prioritize this stuff, which I think is actually a huge miss for a lot of them, especially when they get to a certain scale. You guys are at the scale where you can afford a Super Bowl ad and it's kind of a, a fast moving market where you need to capture as much of the market as early as possible. So um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that beyond just the, the ads. I, I know you're also sponsoring like stadiums and probably teams and all that sort of stuff too. Um, and then just beyond kind of like advertising itself, there's I'm sure there's like partnerships is another big channel that people normally kind of grow, grow through as well. So how are you guys thinking about that beyond ads? Yeah, our initial thought in this space was that if we want to grow quickly um, and not just sort of slowly and organically through things like traditional digital advertising and marketing, we need to do big things to, to say it in the least sophisticated way possible. We need to do a few very big things to reach as, as mass an audience as possible. And there are very few things that compare to naming an entire stadium or 
being the official crypto partner of all of major league baseball. And so there's really, there's two sides. to when we think about these other kinds of uh, marketing type maneuvers, like partnerships or naming properties or working with professional athletes or other celebrities. One is the, the branding aspect of how do we get people to know and trust and think about FTX. And the second is the marketing side of how can we actually use those opportunities to bring in users. So an example might be at the opening night of the, the heat season this year, um, everyone in their seat got like a towel with a QR code. And if they scan the QR code, they got a free NFT that you know commemorated their evening for the opening night of the heat. And in order to reclaim that NFT, they needed an FTX account. And so that brought in some number of thousands of people who were signing up for an FTX account for the first time and learning about us. And so those are unique opportunities for us to leverage our partnerships, to bring people in. Um, so it's when we think about new partnerships that we want to do, it's going to be a combination of what is the brand value to us? And then what can we actually do to activate those opportunities to grow our, our user base directly? That makes sense. Yeah, well, you just mentioned NFTs there. That was something we wanted to talk to you about as well. You'll see our very own Jack is wearing his nouns hat today, which is uh, uh, you know iconic in the NFT world. And uh, he's a, he's the biggest in NFTs out of three of us anyway. Um, so curious on your kind of point of view on NFTs and how FTX is thinking of NFTs um, kind of going forward. So we're excited about NFTs for a couple of different reasons. Um, the technology is super interesting because being able to provide proof of digital ownership is something that I think we have taken for granted has not really existed well on the internet up till now. And the second is that as a way of onboarding people to crypto, it's a lot easier to wrap your head around um, this is a collectible rare thing as opposed to you have to open a non-custodial wallet and you have to understand the difference between Ethereum and Solana and what are different tokens and DeFi and all the concepts around crypto that make it somewhat difficult to swallow. It, we think crypto, NFTs are a particularly good way of onboarding people into the crypto ecosystem. So that's why we have invested time into building our NFT marketplace so we can jump into. But the thing that we're most excited about is that NFTs are going to become a technology used in a variety of different circumstances outside of just sort of the consumer collectible marketplace. One of the biggest areas of this is gaming, where we think that games want to use blockchain technology. And it could be that it's a brand new game that's completely built around some kind of play to earn mechanic or otherwise blockchain technology like Axie Infinity, or it could be some existing AAA studio or publisher who wants to retrofit some existing game and, for example, make their NFT, their skins for their characters available as NFTs. But these game studios are not going to build crypto expertise overnight. They're looking to partner with companies that can help provide those technological services on the back end so they can focus on game creation. Um, so we have, we're talking to a number of different game studios that want to use FTX and white label our product inside of their game and their application or whatever it is. And so we're, we're, that's why we're investing in NFT technology as well. So we can be the one that provides those services on the back end. 
in a, in a manner that's, you know, compliant. So think about one of the reasons why a lot of the blockchain games have been pulled from the Steam store is because they're providing financial transaction services without making sure users aren't, you know, money laundering. And, and so thing that we can do as, as a service is we can help KYC users, we can help run transaction monitoring, we can help do custodial wallet services, we can help mint NFTs, all as a single service for these game companies. And so, Brett, you're teasing us now because you told us as we jumped on the call, uh, we got some exclusive news today. So what <laughs> has happened today as we've been recording? Uh, you guys have just acquired a company in the space. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we just announced um, literally a half an hour ago that we just acquired uh, Good Luck Games, which is a small uh, game studio that has as their first game um, an auto battler called Storybook Brawl. And it's a game that the FTX team fell in love with last year. And we just love the team and their vision. And they shared a lot of our collective vision on um, enabling blockchain technology for games in a way that just complements and doesn't kind of ruin the game experience. And so we're super excited to now work with them on building out their, their game and, and you know, including the different kinds of technologies that FTX can bring as they develop their storybook brawl game, as well as different offshoots that they have planned. So basically what you're saying is SBF has six screens. One is Twitter and one is the gaming <laughs> platform live while he's, while he's doing that's the one. That's the one that was facing away from the yeah, camera. Yeah, no one can see to get him, in, don't want to get him in trouble. Try Brett, on you. Yeah, I just want to ask, uh, so all the initiatives that you mentioned, NFTs, the games, uh, uh, potentially going into stocks, in 10 years from now, what does the revenue pie for FTX look like? Like how many of that is it the white label? How much is trading fees? How many is like stuff we can't even imagine? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, so the white label services we offer for free, it's still gonna be okay. the case that the, the, basically the main fees that we will collect as an exchange will be trading fees. That's how our revenue will, will develop. But the question of where that comes from is interesting. You know, there's some possibility that it is, you know, 98% are derivatives exchange and 2% everything else. Or maybe it's 50% derivatives and 25% games and 25% spot crypto. Um, it's hard to tell. You know, any, there can be punctuated moments in our future history that could completely change the course of how we want to prioritize as a company. Like if some, giant publisher and i'm not saying this is in the works but if there were like some you know huge gaming company with 100 million users suddenly decided to make ftx their back-end provider that could become our largest revenue source overnight but it's difficult to tell and so that's why we are developing a lot of these foundational technologies now to prepare for the potential for those things to exist but in the meantime our, our existing business of growing our exchange our spot our derivatives exchange stocks um, is going to be the primary driver of our revenue, I think, over the next one to three year, two years or so. That, because uh, SBF, that sounds consistent with something FBF said in that Forbes piece that came out uh, earlier last year, where he said, if, uh, you know, if I can make this much money trading orange futures, I would. I don't know if you remember that piece, but uh, is that kind of the idea of you guys are just building uh, just a trading infrastructure? Doesn't really matter ultimately what it is. Uh, and are you, are you, do you hold a similar sentiment where you're not married to crypto? Cause I think SBF has kind of mentioned that he's not married to crypto. Yeah. I think, you know, crypto is, is definitely our niche and it's certainly a lot of the ways in which we are building out our company. And we think it's like the, the least explored area in finance, but 
there's nothing specific about our derivatives exchange to crypto except for the, you know, the, the hot cold storage system and connecting to blockchains for deposits and withdrawals. But other than that, it is a matching engine where you can deposit money and trade things and get a GUI on top of it. And so you're right, it could be a crypto future or it could be a lumber future or it could be an equity future or whatever it is. Um, we think we can provide sort of superior technology and superior risk management for those kinds of services. And it's not where we're going to start on day one. Day one is going to be you know, Bitcoin, Ether, quarterly futures. But down the road, it wouldn't be crazy for us to expand. I think, you know, in one of the big things that happened in the traditional financial world in the last couple of weeks following the events in Ukraine was the implosion of the London Metals Exchange around trading of nickel forwards. And it was sort of the perfect real-time example of why our risk system works the way it does, 24-7 real-time margining as opposed to wait several days and hope that the person can you know put up the funds if they've gone underwater and so it's why we're hopeful that even beyond crypto our whole ethos around how to run a risk reducing exchange extends to other products to metals to other kinds of commodities to equities to treasuries and we, we will get there over time Um, yeah, you just mentioned the the war. Uh, well, what's happened in recent weeks? I, I was curious on your take on how, like, those events might be accelerating or changing the kind of space as a whole. Because some people are arguing that, you know, th this kind of duplicate financial system that is decentralized should be gain. Well, I hate to use the word gaining, but gaining momentum in a time where, you know, there's more uncertainty in the world. Do you hold that view or do you, have you seen anything from your perspective being at FTX? The, the most direct thing that we have observed, and this is just a fact, is for the first time ever, a global community of decentralized users have contributed directly through no intermediaries to a government's uh, resistance to an aggressive power. And we saw this a couple of different ways. People donated something like 100 million plus worth of crypto assets directly to the Ukrainian government's published addresses. FTX itself was contacted by the Ukrainian government to open an account on their behalf so we can help convert um, different kinds of cryptocurrencies into dollars or whatever currency they need and send it to them via SWIFT. And this is all possible because of crypto technology. And not that this is the thing we wanted to have happen in order to be able to prove out crypto technology. But the way that this has come about has really shown the power of having a centralist, decentralized, current borderless currency. And so that's been really exciting to see that play out in real time. Um, I think it also has caused people to ask the hard questions about crypto, which is, what about the reverse direction? Is this a way for you know sanctioned governments or individuals or businesses to be able to move money outside of the, the financial system in a way that's undetectable. And largely that's not true. And that's why we've, it, it's been a good point of um, discussion now to be able to actually like talk through those issues and show people like actually as an exchange, here's all the things that we do every day to prevent, you know, sanctioned individuals from accessing the platform. That's what all the other exchanges do as well. And it's caused some good conversations to happen with regulators, with um, federal agencies with lawmakers and that's all I think another positive development from all this 
That makes sense, man. Uh, Brett, I know you're going to have to leave in a second. I did have one last question for you. I don't know if the guys have anything to throw in as well, but the, the, you mentioned earlier when you met SBF originally, you guys bonded over you know some work stuff, but also some shared values. You said you're both vegans, I think. Um, and also I heard you mention this kind of shared uh, philosophy around effective altruism. Um, and for people who don't really know what that is, um, could you just explain what it is and kind of like how you see your role in, in FTX uh, being able to contribute to that in, in the long run? Yeah, so I would say the thing that um, we share in common the most is sort of the philosophy of like earn to give, um, where, you know, there's different ways that one can give back. And one is by actually directly contributing um, your time to some organization that's doing things to you know, help people. And that's fantastic. And people should do that. And that's completely necessary. Um, there's another way to do it, which is to, if you're in a position where you're privileged enough to be able to earn, to be able to use, to sort of earn with the purpose of using that to contribute back to philanthropic causes. And I think that is you know, philosophy that many of us within the company share. You know, I think effective altruism is a, a sort of, it's a related but separate point from earn to give, which is sort of the idea of you know, trying to maximize like the dollar spent on, you know, charitable causes and, and, you know, different philanthropic ends. And I think that there's aspects of that, which are, which make a lot of sense. And there are aspects of that that are a little more theoretical and definitely in terms of, you know, personal giving, it would do sort of a mix of things that, you know, maybe wouldn't be the most efficient, you know, per dollar spent according to some metrics, but, you know, are very clearly, you know, ending certain kinds of either, you know, suffering or trying to help people or animals in different parts of, you know, the, the global ecosystem. And so I think that's the, the real thing that we share in common. And that, again, a lot of people in the company share this as well, is that, that one should, should live their life with a purpose, they should earn with a purpose. And this is a, this is a pretty good way to figure out how to get back. Love it, man. Uh, Trung and Jack, anything else before we wrap up? I know, Brett, you're going to have to leave in a second. So. Yeah, I got one quick question. Was, go, uh, go, Brett was mentioning in, kind of these shared values. I was wondering, is there a book that kind of everyone in FTX is kind of reads or is like handed out or when you join, it's like, yo, you got to read this? <laughs> oh, I don't think there's that. I'm trying to think what I Just should recommend. Just a Toshi's white paper, put it on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Framed on the wall. <laughs> I think, well, I don't know. I think everyone should read uh, Animal Liberation. I think that's probably okay. an important foundational text. I think... And he has a lot of good ideas there. So um, that, that would be my recommendation. All right. Beautiful. Love it. Thank you. We got some actionable advice there, Trung. That's uh, Trung's oh. uh, finishing. Oh, your light's just gone off. Uh, yeah, um, my son just turned off the light to my business. That's, <laughs> does it. Sorry, guys. Working from home life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Brett, uh, Jack, anything else before we... No, I just want to say thank you, Brett. Thank Appreciate you so much, it. Brett. That was um, amazing. Taking an hour out to uh, vibe on here is much appreciated. Yeah, no, thanks, guys. It was fun. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on, man. I think people are going to love this. Uh, we'll have to do it again. Great. Thanks All right, man. Good luck with that new company. We'll, we'll be in touch soon. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Take Cheers. care. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Yeah, boys, how was that for you? Uh, good little chat with Brett. Thanks to Brett again for joining and the FTX team for uh, sorting that out for us. Um, yeah, I guess a way to round it up, I think we were just going to share kind of anything you guys stood out from what he, what he spoke about. Plenty, man. I think the size of the team was the most surprising thing for me. Yeah, like that's mental. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's cool to, to, to see 
that married up with like the way they behave and the things that they're able to do quickly. I think there's like an inevitability of sluggishness that comes with scale. Like I've thought a lot about it, but the, weirdly i think the best barometer for that is the memes like the more like funny the memes probably the smaller and more nimble the team (laughs) that they're able to get it through yeah yeah like there's this one you know the one where there's sbf and he's like sitting on the edge of a table looking at a window have you seen that one just like the formats that people have been able to like carve out of that is just it's just next level man and then he's hilarious isn't he yeah and the more like the i guess the more formal learning was um around the like infrastructure or api play which i think is a little different and maybe every other exchange is doing this but they're um it feels like that's more in their dna right it's not something that they're doing like looking back and doing it's an active part of their approach and the last thing the solana thing he mentioned is like Mm. is solana like the infrastructure that they're going to build underneath um, FTX as a platform. Like that's kind of a, that's an interesting uh, way to view it as like, it's a improvement on like an AWS or something, but it's still a competitor kind of in that space versus seeing it as like a competitor in Ethereum or Bitcoin when it really isn't because it's not competing on the same, like, if you put it on a, you know, the washing machine comparison chart, there's the, the chicks don't line up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking that, um, yeah, just to add to what you said, Jack, I think the fact, did they say 200 employees? 250, I think he said, yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And how they're valued at what? Like, what was the latest five? FTX US is 8 billion. FTX, 8 billion. Uh, uh, the, the main uh, global one is 32 billion. So 40 That's billion. insane. 32 it's, it's, billion for 200 employees, uh, 250 employees is... Listen, I'm not going to do the math on that, but if I did, it'd be very impressive. The revenue per employee is very high. I will say uh, it'll be interesting. I'd love to speak to him or SBF in a few years' time and see how that kind of scaling goes because I think normally when you get to like two to 500 people, you go from the point where you don't know everyone's name anymore yeah, and like the culture changes and then you do have to kind of unfortunately create all those layers, which is annoying but kind of necessary. And then interestingly, uh, I could see uh, Jack's Mr. Leverage himself eyes lighting up <laughs> when he talked about, you know, maximizing. Jack has them. a book to sell them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> um, when he was talking about like scaling through, you know, people, but like not just hiring a bunch of people. Um, but that that normally doesn't coincide with having the view of sponsoring a stadium and doing a Super Bowl. Right. That was quite, which I like. I like this, like quite intellectually. Um, what's the word? There's the word contrarian. Exactly. Yeah. They can hold two, uh, basically positions without them being contradictory almost. So um, I thought that was quite interesting. And then the last thing, the effective altruism thing, is quite interesting because I think like as crypto. Uh, as the crypto space grows you're going to get more layers of people coming in from traditional finance from consultancy from also like media etc etc and all those people aren't going to have that same core like basically on the other end of the scale bitcoin maximalist style libertarian like the whole world needs oil in puddles and stuff exactly yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, and I think that's a good thing. That that's a good sign of a healthy 
growing ecosystem that you have people that have different basically motivations for being there um and i think it's a genuine thing like i i have thoughts on effective altruism in general like i overall i basically agree with it but i think some people kind of use that as a mask to make themselves feel okay through a life worth of you know uh trying to maximize earnings but either way i, I think in net net it's like an overall positive thing uh, i'm not saying that these guys think that I, I think in general i've just met other people like that um anything from you trunk any highlights from the chat <laughs> well dude you actually uh well first more serious one is what you mentioned below is uh the kind of like be able to hold two thoughts is like stay nimble but also do the splash they kind of like almost go yeah. hand in hand though right it's like if you're spending 130 mil on naming a stadium you don't have to make many decisions with 130 mil budget anymore right if you had the 130 mil budget yeah. in your marketing department you're going to have to hire a bunch of people to find different venues and avenues to spend that money. Right. They're just like, you know what? Let's not waste any of our cognitive uh, abilities, which is why Brett giving an hour. And I know that he's been on other podcasts recently. He's like an hour of Brett's time is Crazy. so valuable. Mm. It's like, you could do the math on that, Trump. Yeah, do the math on how much. <laughs> like this, Brett's running an eight billion dollar. Like they're eight billion on in private markets right now. It's probably worth way more. Um, uh, it will be on the next round for sure. Uh, he, how does this guy sleep? Is this like we know SPF doesn't sleep very much? That's the one question I actually missed. I'm like SPF sleeps five hours. I'm like, what's it like working with SPF if he's sleeping five hours a night? Like, what does that what does that mean for you guys and the rest of the team? Right, like that that yeah. that's a definitely missed question right there. And but um, I had one missed question, which when we were talking about Solana and Eve, I didn't get to ask about uh, like layer two scaling stuff for Eve because that would be kind of relevant. But anyway. That we there's always questions you can't uh, get to so uh trunk did you freeze there mate He'd, if you're on camera make sure we don't oh no no you're good you're good <laughs> but good? make sure we keep that in because that was funny but Yo, uh, i want to i gotta look at the screen again this. man here for the listeners i pulled up that tweet again with sbf screen it's literally an entire screen of twitter it's incredible these guys are dedicated doing. to the cause and let, let's look at that original meme again not even a meme. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so <laughs> he, he learned from his first one. Anyway, yeah, unbelievable. Uh, the tweet where uh, SPF tied his shoe. I mean, you can't even call that a shoe tie. You just kind of. I. You know what, man? I'll be honest with you. I kind of stopped tying my shoe. I, I'm pretty. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, when I'm grabbing, when I'm holding my kid. And my shoes, like, it's just the last thing I'm worried about. It's my shoes tied. If You're I'm not like, worried about falling over and dropping your kid? Or what? Yeah, well, that's a good point. Uh, me, editor, cut that out. I don't no, want no, uh, no, family no, no. child services to come after um, me. But uh, unbelievable, the, man. You've got the swaggy, the swaggy style where you don't tie it. You just let them let them. Yeah, you got the, the Yeezys, that loose tie. <laughs> you know, just kind of sl turn them into slides. Turn them into Adidas slides, slippers. Um, other than that, man, like, yeah, the main takeaway was uh, I'm very uh, grateful that he took an hour out of his day. It's like, I know how important that hour is, right? And uh, the other thing is, the uh, I, I was happy he talked about the history of Chicago, actually. That would be a fun one to dig into, how Chicago became the a derivatives capital of the world. And uh, obviously, a lot of that has to do with the fact that when they used to uh, uh, run trains across the country, delivering stuff like cattle and uh, agriculture, it, uh, Chicago was kind of the mid stop. 
uh, th- that goes back to like the late 1800s. But uh, no, that was uh, that was great, Mr. man. Mr. Professor, yeah, yeah prof, getting it in. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to get, I wanted to dig into like that. 1812, I don't know, maybe yeah. around 1812. <laughs> Uh, no, that was great, man. I was uh, very, very yeah, happy to that. that chat. I got, I got one last thing. Um, the we, I think we put, we said it when we were talking to him about like they seem to be the exchange, the company, the brand that like the crypto natives have embraced the most by far, with a very objective stance on crypto. Like they've managed to do that without, without like doing the religious like uh really extreme points of view on why crypto needs to exist like it's a very balanced perspective like up evaluates it in terms of like yeah this technology makes the financial markets more competitive not like hey let's escape oppression or xyz which is all obviously byproduct of it but i think that's a really interesting thing they managed to accomplish that and almost signals that you don't need that narrative as badly as some people believe you do to reach the level of adoption that you need to reach to serve hundreds of millions of people, right? Trunk, you're on a trunk. You're on a mute. Oh, I thought I thought my whole I thought my whole rant there was was silent. <laughs> no, no, we, no, no, no. <laughs> wait, that was so funny. I just everyone. Zoom into Jack's face. They hear that was the the level of yeah. annoyance and panic to be like, oh you god, I'm uh, <laughs> If you're listening, Jack just I mean, you obviously heard what Jack just said, but uh, my thing was muted, and and Jack thought Bilal was telling him was like, yeah, sorry, dude, we didn't hear anything. Jack is <laughs> like his moment, like the most like vulnerable Jack's ever been, and it'll never happen again. <laughs> yeah. No, Jack. Although in the past you have said it, right? You have said that um, you're not gonna. You're not going to onboard a lot of people if you're making them, you know, listen, here's a kettlebell you need to buy. Here's right. a, a plate of seed phrases that uh, you got to onboard people with. It's uh, they're a technology company, right? FTX is a technology company that I think the white label that you mentioned, Jack, that was uh, kind of uh, the new framing of it. It's like that really kind of the hammers at home. It's like, mm. I mean, Brett said is like our totally hypothetical, but it's like we're building infrastructure. We white label it in 10 years time or five years right. time. If uh, if a massive gaming company makes that their back end, that's our biggest revenue stream, right? They're a technology company. That yeah. that's what's most important to them. It's not necessarily this other stuff you mentioned, the philosophical stuff, uh, the value stuff, which obviously is important, but of course, yeah, front and center for them. Which is like I think Brian Armstrong even is like way in that camp, and and they've succeeded at massive scale. Yeah, with it's just an interesting. Um, juxtaposition we'll see how it plays out but like they're on the right trajectory that's for sure i get last question for you boys this is a hard one because one has probably already got a head start i don't know the market caps of these companies off top of my head 10 years from now coinbase ftx who's the leader in global crypto or binance or one of these others that's a well well, binance is much bigger than both of them Uh, all right let's do the u.s uh, let's do uh ftx and coinbase then because uh that might not be a fair fight. Well, I think uh, it, it'll have to be roadmap dependent in the sense of uh, it sounds like FTX are very agnostic. They're building the technology and they will do, I mean, they, they talked about doing stocks. Uh, they talked about, they could be the one-stop shop for every kind of financial transaction, right? And they talk about doing like kind of a, a events, futures. Uh, they're talking about 
NFTs. I mean, they, I mean, I know Coinbase has NFTs, but let's just talk about the trading stuff. I think I saw on a previous- Trunk, can I just, just 10 second interrupt, just so you know, I just looked up market cap of Coinbase is 41 billion right now. And the last valuation, which is that right? I'm looking on Google here. Yeah, yeah. 3,700 employees. 3,700 employees. And the last valuation I'm seeing here is like 32 billion or something like that for FTX, maybe- Maybe it's 40 or something like that now. Um, but yeah, just to say, they're actually on a similar scale, it looks like. so Yeah, yeah, probably- but based on the private markets. I think yeah. uh, what I will say is this. So I also heard or uh, read somewhere that they want to be bigger than CME. So uh, CME was mentioned. That's a Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Uh, it's on a CME group. They do the, the their I think they might be the, the world's largest uh, derivatives exchange or futures exchange, if not one of the two or three. Um they are, FTX says they want to be bigger than CME. So that'll be a $100 billion dollar company right there, right? Uh, but, I mean, they're building towards that. Like, if, if crypto is the wedge into becoming a, a, a derivatives, a futures exchange, a one-stop shop where everything's just better than the existing system, then, I mean, I think uh, FTX's technology angle is what makes it interesting. Yeah. Um, it's like a if it would have uh, think of it as the AWS for crypto, right? If that is even something, I don't know if that's what they're thinking about, but if that is what they're doing with this white label kind of a play, it's interesting, man. I, I, I again, I don't know Coinbase's thing, but it say like it, Trung, say it. Yeah, I can't. Right now, guys, <laughs> I'm staying on the fence, bros. I'm staying on the fence. Well, I'll no, say I it. FTX. FTX. I, I mean, honestly, after, I didn't realize they were that close in valuation. And uh, the fact they're still a private company is kind of crazy, right? And, oh, yeah. Um, and then second- Three years. They've done this the, for three years. Remember they, their 420.69 raise. We should have yeah, brought that up as well. That's true, actually. Um, I was just going to say one other thing. I forgot the number he said, but the outside of the US, how much more volume was going through their systems with how many less users or whatever. That I like. I forgot the number. So oh yeah, I think it's but. like they're two to three times larger uh, in terms of volume uh, versus uh, Coinbase, but they have uh, maybe a tenth of the users. There we go. And uh, unreal, right? Talking, for people listening, Jack has just pulled up Coindesk.com. FTX rate is four twenty six nine zero four. That that is so funny. <laughs> what is that? Four hundred twenty million, basically four hundred twenty point six mil. That's insane. There's a lot of zeros yeah. there. I was, uh, man, man, they're they're the meme masters, man. I think the like that edge is is kind of incalculable. What that can lead to if In they the continue run, yeah. to stay on that edge and p- play uh, well there, it's you know. It's I love very... that hair just popping up. Of, I'm assuming <laughs> there he is. There he is. I mean, what yeah, like yeah, uh, it's the meme is strong, man. We're betting on the meme. That's it. All right. I think I, I would actually say, and genuinely, before we had this conversation, I didn't know enough about FTX at that level. But now I'm seeing that they're a similar scale and they're so much younger. I'm bet this is like the Arsenal bet for me. This is young Saka, young ML Smith Rowe, youngest manager in the league. This is it. This is uh, FTX is the Arsenal of the crypto world. Oh my goodness! We need these analogies every uh, every every week, (laughs) which means uh, not won anything for several years. But anyway, uh, I think uh, I hope any football fans at FTX don't take offense to that. But um, all right, boys. Anything else before we before we wrap it up? I think that was really really fun fun chat. That was that was fun. That was great. They uh, uh, 
the last thing I mentioned, and we've kind of talked about it, is that their sense of the meme and jokes is like very, I mean, Brett was very easy going, right? He's like, he gets it. He gets it. Yeah, completely, man. Well, if you're listening to this, you made it all the way here, let us know. I mean, we don't do that many episodes with guests. We have quite a high bar for guests. We get people pitching us or like introducing us to people. And we say, like, we generally know people prefer it when it's three of us. At the same time, uh, looking at all of our numbers recently, our two most listened to episodes were actually with guests. So uh, Tom Osman, our boy, and Rick Burton. Uh, were the two most popular episodes we've ever had so I will say I think guests can work if we get like good guests and if we have an interesting angle uh, but yeah let us know what you think of this one um, you can comment on YouTube uh, tweet us or whatever or comment in the Telegram group people do that as well and as always we really appreciate the support and love and we will see you on the next one thank you all see you next week